General Secretary of the SACP, Dr. Bladen Zimande, as we all know, was outspoken against state capture and corruption in government. This, in the view of the SACP, was centered on the relationship or the friendship between President Jacob Zuma and members of the Gupta family. It is very clear that the president was not happy about that program of the SACP and the articulating role played by our general secretary in advancing the program. This is, in our view, the reason why President Jacob Zuma finally decided to release uh, Dr. Bladen Zimande from the cabinet. In fact, as the SACP, we commend Comrade played for the role that he played, we uh, uh, will be depending that role and taking it forward. If the president was thinking that by removing our general secretary from the cabinet, we will become silent, I think he is going to achieve contradictory results because we will proceed and depend the program. Now, the SACP Politburo met uh, on Friday. What was the outcome following the cabinet reshuffle by the president? We met on Friday and reported back to the Politburo about the statement that we issued in response to the reshuffle and to verify whether our analysis in the statement was correct. That analysis was correct, but it was further strengthened that look. We must proceed, and there are two programmatic steps that will be unfolding this coming week. On Thursday, there is a National Alliance Political Council. The SACP will proceed to that meeting to advance its perspectives, including that President Jacob Zuma must step down. Secondly, a day after the Alliance Political Council on Thursday, we will have a Central Committee induction, which will also serve as a special meeting to receive a feedback from the Alliance Political Council to depend the way forward. The Alliance Political Council, is that still working? Because the question would be asked as to why does the SACP still feel that it needs to be part of this tripartite alliance, uh, given that it seems that it's no longer in operation? The Alliance Political Council was not working at all. Every time it had to meet or every time it was scheduled to meet, at an 11th hour, the ANC will request a postponement at the instance of the president. We hope that this will not happen on Thursday. The SACP played a leading role in establishing this alliance going back to the years 1928-1929 because we believed and still believe that unity is better than division. This is what has made us loyal to the alliance. This is the message we will be taking. However, if there is anyone who still insists that the alliance must function under authoritarianism, under unilateralism, under decision-making without consultation, this alliance is going to break down. It will have to be reconfigured via the ballot. What are you trying to gain out of the, the, uh, the Alliance Political Council on Thursday? You will remember that uh, since March when we took our decision in response to the cabinet reshuffle, where the former Minister of Finance and his deputy, Pravin Goran and Kedisi um, Jonas, were removed, and others 
without consultation with the ANC and the Alliance by the president, we took a decision that the president must resign. Since that decision was taken, there was never a bilateral meeting between the SACP and the ANC. There was also never an alliance political council where this matter would be formally tabulated with the, food, with the way forward. This alliance political council coming on Thursday is the first of such meetings, and this issue will have to be tabulated so that we proceed, because the ANC has made statements. The president has not consulted it, and uh, of course we have also made our statement, Kwasatu and Sanko, we were not uh, consulted. We have to discuss the consequences of having a deployee of the movement who makes major decisions without consultation to obtain mandate from the movement. We will have to enforce the principle of collective leadership, party control, and accountability. If we fail, it means that we would have allowed the president to stand above the movement and operate outside of it. Now, the SACP has described the latest cabinet reshuffle as nothing but an attempt to punish the SACP for publicly calling on the president uh, to step down after the SACP's general secretary, Dr. Bladen Zamande, was removed from the higher education portfolio. But what do you say to those who are suggesting that uh, Dr. Zamande uh, was not very proactive in his position? Samando was uh, very, very, very proactive. Let me give you, you know, a background about, uh, make use this opportunity about my, you know, education background. I went to college after 1994. At that time, there was uh, the Tertiary Education Fund of South Africa. That fund did not cover college students. Students from poor families, such as me, were without funding at colleges at all. When that fund, the Tertiary Education Fund of South Africa, popularly known as TESA, was transformed into the National Student Financial Aid Scheme, the scheme still did not cover student colleges. I was in the core leadership of college students in South Africa studying in Gauteng and completed my studies at the college without the fund covering college students who are poor students who could not go to university like me at the start because of funding. For the first time, college students were covered by the National Student Financial Aid Scheme, it was under the leadership of Dr. Platin Demande. This time, they were not just covered but those who pass their studies at technical and vocational education and training colleges did not have to pay back the money. In other words, they realized free education, and that was under his leadership. It is very important that when we deal with an assessment of performance, we are concrete. Secondly, we all know that when he was... Uh, uh, appointed to that position, the National Student Financial Aid Scheme was below 3 billion rand. The scheme was tripled to about 9 billion rand under his leadership, not because there was increased allocation from the Treasury, but because the National uh, Skills Fund that looked after sector education and training authorities, together with those sector education and training authorities, were transferred to the Department of Higher Education and Training, and the resources from the National Skills Fund and CITAS were, were leveraged innovatively to augment the National Student Financial Aid Scheme because the budget allocated to the Department of Higher Education and Training was sufficient to expand access to higher education and training. When that was happening, 
the budget was declining and uh, uh, subsidies to universities were declining, forcing universities to increase fees. That was a structural issue of national fiscal and revenue. But he managed to make use of resources from CITAS to counteract that. And for that, we thank him. And we are sure that access will not be expanded any further unless there is new supply of money. Unfortunately, in his pocket, as you know, he did not have the billions that were required to, to, to expand access further. This is a matter of state policy. And anyone who thinks that there will be further expansion without new supply of money to the Department of Higher Education and Training, he is lying and being pressed now. Now, as the Communist Party, you've spoken about it, uh, you've hinted at it. 2019 is around the corner with the tripartite in tatters. Is it in time that you should go it alone? We took a decision in July that the manner in which our alliance functions is outdated. We go to campaign for the ANC together to win elections and to vote for it ourselves, contributing to its victory. But thereafter, one man and one man alone makes decisions without even consulting with the ANC. In some respect, ANC structures alone, without consulting with alliance partners, will make decisions because they think this is an ANC-led government. The alliance doesn't matter. When there are elections, we decided in July that that mode of operation is outdated and we will not go to the next election working under that mode of uh, operation. If those who believe that they can sustain that mode of operation and are continuing to refuse the reconfiguration of the alliance to function under democratic principles of consensus seeking consultation, then the alliance will have to be reconfigured from the ballot. Now, I thank you so much for your time and joining us on the line, Alex. Thank you. That was the South African Communist Party's national spokesperson and head of communication, Mr. Alex Mashilo. When I was appointed deputy president, I accepted the appointment because it is the president's prerogative to appoint or to remove anybody on the executive and if the decision is to remove me I will accept that as a decision that will have been taken by the president and I will continue serving the people of South Africa in one form shape or another that's all I can say on this matter keep that particular phrase in your minds. Meanwhile, the University of Johannesburg's Department of Politics and International Relations have been hosting a two-day conference on succession in liberation movements. The conference has been focusing largely on succession within the African National Congress, while also drawing from other experiences in the region. Now, for more on this, we join on the line by Professor Mkabisin Tlachana, Professor of Politics at the University of Johannesburg. Now, Professor, very good morning to you and welcome. Ah, good morning, Elvis. You heard the deputy president there on that particular club. What do you say to that? Because uh, he's suggesting that uh, it is not in his hands. It's in the president's hands. Well, of course, you are quite right. Uh, he's right. President Zuma does have the powers to hire and fire. And he's been reshuffling his cabinet quite a lot lately. 
Uh, I suppose one would not be surprised if you were to fire Cyril. Um, it's something we have become accustomed to, I'm afraid, uh, however damaging it is to the country. But this president has seen it fit to do it uh, as he pleases. Would you say that President Jacob Zuma is already thinking about succession, giving his last reshuffle, his cabinet reshuffle? Uh, for me, I think this last succession was about two things. Yes, thinking about or rather this last reshuffling, um, he is thinking about the December conference uh, in that he has very little time left. Um, and the idea really was to complete some of the things, especially state capture. Uh, this, for me, is given away by the appointment of David Mashabo. You see, David Mashabo, there's nothing that he values more than pleasing the president. Uh, He's a runner more than anything else. He does what the president tells him to do. Uh, He's been doing that at state intelligence. Uh, So if there's anyone who can agree to doing anything for the president without blinking an eye or asking a question, it's David Mashabo. Kubai didn't quite do that. Kubai wanted to do things by the book. Uh, and we now know that there are all sorts of questions around procurement of nuclear. Um, and Mashaba seems intent to to doing exactly that. Uh, and he has appointed uh, a new minister into intelligence who will continue what Mashaba was doing. Bongo was Mashaba's junior when Mashaba was head of department in Pumalang. So Mashaba was pretty much... Um, appointed his own replica to continue exactly what he had been doing. Uh, so that's that's what it's all about, uh, completing the state capture project. Uh, and it's quite it's quite worrying uh, because you need to you need to uh, be concerned that this president is determined to continue with a potentially erroneous uh, program. Uh, why is he so persistent? Uh, does someone have a gun on his head? What exactly would you would you want to do something that is so damaging to the press of the country? It's it's quite worrying. We should worry about it. Now you're very you're busy with a very interesting topic: the succession and liberation movements for the last two days at the University of Johannesburg. Tell us what came out of that conference, and and does that incorporate the African National Congress as we speak, 24 years into a democratic South Africa? Yes, that was a that was an exciting exciting conference, uh, Elvis. We. We started off by looking at the ANC, the various successions that the ANC has had since 1991. We had Fini Chinwala, Mavusom Simang, and Saki Makozoma, all of them speaking on the various successions. It is quite clear that the, 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 the stable successions were one from Tambo to Mandela, Mandela to Mbeki, because those were planned. Um, the idea is that you need to think about who will become the new leader way before the incumbent steps down. Uh, you have discussions. Um, people say who they think is best, given the challenges that the country com- is confronting at the time. Uh, with Tambo and Mandela, they defer to us towards each other. There was a personal chemistry. Um, you know, so that was an easy succession. And also because everyone in the ANC kind of realized that that generation had to deliver South Africa into liberation, and Tamo was very ill at the time, so Mandela became the obvious choice. And of course, when Mandela uh, had to came in and was thinking of stepping down, the good thing that he did quite early on was that he would uh, was to say that he was only serve one term, which meant that 
they needed to start discussing who would be his, his successor. Uh, and of course, within the ANC uh, in '94, when they had their own elective conference, that conference was preceded by a lot of discussions who should succeed Mandela as party president. Uh, and the consensus was that perhaps Tabo, perhaps Tabo should be a party president. Uh, so you 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 had uh, discussions and managed. Succession. It only became bad, really, with uh, Mbeki Zuma succession because there was a lot of disagreements there, and and people felt uh, disgruntled, marginalised, and they mobilised against Tavo. Um, and the, the the one thing that made that particularly terrible was uh, uh, animosity. Now, you know, which had come to characterise the relationship between. Um, Becky and Zuma, and that animosity kind of infiltrated the entire organization. The one thing, though, that Sakima told myself that was quite interesting was that they did not want Zuma to succeed uh, Tabo, but really did not have an alternative. Instead, they went back to Tabo. Um, and that complicated the succession because Tabo, over the years, had accumulated all sorts of enemies within the ANC. And in fact, he made a very interesting point, which was that at the time, their alternative was Ngoza Zanazuma, but they didn't push Ngoza Zanazuma option strong enough. Uh, you know, so it was left then to the mercy of everyone else. It was all nasty and everything. But that's, that's, that's the interesting part, really, about what we're discussing, focusing mm-hmm. on the ANC. But why is it then, Professor, that liberation movements such as the ANC struggle with succession and adjusting to being political parties? Uh, I think the, the, the Chama Chama experience in, in Tanzania does help the ANC a little bit in respect to that question. Uh, because there, you, what has been happening in the last few years since Tanzania became a multi-party democracy in the early 90s was that you have uh, former leaders of the party coming in, setting some kind of an informal forum to to discuss uh, and decide who should stand for the candidature of the, of the presidency of the party. So it's not left you know, uh, unmanaged. Um, they use their own moral authority to guide the discussions. The point about democracy is that, yes, you do want everyone to stand and contest, but you also don't want the process to get messy. Uh, you know, and, and in that case, you do want people with moral, moral authority whose judgment is highly respected that if they suggest a particular candidate, and they argue for that candidate, they don't have an ulterior motive. They are not benefiting. They are not using that candidate as a Trojan horse. You know, so that's that's one lesson that the ANC could learn, right? Salimo hasn't been doing well in the last few years. Uh, They've been losing support. Um, And one of the things they've decided to do recently was to appoint a fairly young uh, leader for the party to rejuvenate the party, and the president doesn't really have history uh, credential. Um, he's, he's, he's one of the people that were pretty much born after the war, um, but has been a party activist. 
So in a way, the party is looking ahead, right? Uh, because liberation is very much part of its own history, and most of the liberation movements have used their involvement uh, in liberating the country as a major mobilizing point. So in this case, uh, Felimo has had to kind of reinvent itself. Yes, it is still a party of liberation, but at the same time, it's looking into the future. Um, because most of the voters now, some of them have a very scant recollection of what happened in the past, and they're more concerned about uh, the here and now. What is government doing for them? So you need to have someone who can speak to to present challenges and future aspirations of people. Um, because old leaders really don't quite know how to come up with new rhetoric they always go back to the 60s and the 70s because that's what formed them. That's the only thing they know. Um, and the, the disappointment that has come with liberation now um, has made people uh, kind of deaf to stories about how they were liberated. They, they are very quick to dismiss that and say, but what are you doing now? The only thing you are doing seems to be benefiting yourself instead of the country. So you need new leaders, young people who can who are who are open to thinking afresh, coming up with new ways of answering questions about what will the liberation movement do to people in the year now. Mm-hmm. Now, Secretary General of the ANC, Gwede Mantashe, says that if succession issues within the African National Congress is not well managed, it can turn out to be a mess. But there are those within the party that suggest that there is no such thing as natural succession within the ANC thoughts on that? Well, you do need to manage uh, perhaps a slight reference to the, to the Zimbabwean situation really does tell you or give us an extreme case of what happens if succession is not managed. Zimbabwe, uh, Mugabe is now 93, right? Um, and there is a stalemate uh, going on there. Um, his successor hasn't, the question of his successor hasn't been resolved. Um, mainly because they, the two dominant factions can't quite agree uh, who should succeed Mugabe. Um, and the dispute is over business deals. Um, that's what happens um, when the elite can't negotiate among themselves, uh, uh, especially when we talk of economic empowerment. But Yes, uh, you do need to empower up-and-coming business people, but you need to make sure that everyone gets a share of the pie instead of trying to hog everything. What has been happening in Zimbabwe is that the question of empowerment hasn't been thoroughly discussed uh, to ensure that everyone who wants to go into business does go to business uh, and you share the spoils equally. Um, what they wanted to do, rather, is to hog the spoils, and uh, hence they, they, they are unresolved as to who succeeds, um, because they are benefiting with the status quo, some of them, you know, because you pretty much have an ineffective president there, so you can do as much as you please. And you have a dynasty emerging. Um, Mugabe also think, is thinking of protecting his own family. This is why Grace Mukaza has become so central in, uh, in politics. Uh, so it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's really a messy situation that tells you what is likely to happen if you don't manage succession. And in South Africa, you have uh, an element of dynasty 
Right, a family, uh, patrimonialism, uh, a family linked to the president that has enriched itself, and now they know that uh, should the head of that family, who is currently the president of the republic, leaves, then they are exposed to all sorts of prosecution because they have used him as president to amass wealth illegally. Uh, and now he's thinking of bringing in his, his ex-wife as a way of protecting the loot. You know, so... You, you have to be careful about the decisions that you make today mm-hmm. uh, because because those decisions will come back to haunt you. So the ANC must think thoroughly um, about about who its new leader should be because uh, the consequences are, are quite dire. Mm-hmm. Professor, I thank you so much for your time and joining us on the line. All right, I'll just take care, man. Have a nice weekend. You too. That was Professor Mkabisi Tlachana, Professor of Politics at the University of Johannesburg. Now, of course, we're looking at all angles of this particular story, the cabinet reshuffle. Now, to look at the economical implications of the recent uh, cabinet reshuffle, uh, we are joined on the line uh, from the University of the Northwest School of Business, the SBG, Professor Raymond Parsons. A very good morning to you, sir, and welcome. Good morning, Elvis. Uh, Professor, let's look at the cabinet, the recent uh, cabinet reshuffle. Uh, what impact did it have on our economy? Well, Elvis, I think that we must accept at the outset that any president or prime minister has the right to reshuffle his or her cabinet. And this also applies, of course, to our president. He can choose his executive. But what I want to share with you is the cumulative impact of certain certain numbers, which are really quite important for the for the broad environment of policy. Because in eight years, we've had about 11, you know, we've had about 11 reshuffles of the cabinet. Since 2014, there have been four, four ministers of energy to this year. We've had four ministers of finance in the past two years. And then also, 216 directors general has now been shown by research in the past five years to be either suspended or dismissed. Now, what is the impact of this? Because it, it says there is collateral damage to the broad policy environment. That's why we said before, uncertainty and indeed policy uncertainty is now, is now the new normal because it has an impact on the decisions of the private sector and this uncertainty and, and these, these constant and frequent changes at the top of the public sector have implications for how we can implement things, why there are complaints about delivery. So, so it's really a question that, that it's the frequency of these changes that is having an impact on our economic performance in South Africa. Does that speak to political as well as policy uncertainty then in the country, Professor? Well, look, we're, <clears throat> we're into uncharted political waters now. There's no doubt about it from several points of view. And I don't want to express a view uh, on the politics. I can only point out what is the collateral damage to, to, you know, to our economy. And, and what's important here is to understand that the combination of economics and politics is doing harm to our economy, and, and it shows up in various ways. The fact that we're in a low-growth trap, that we have high unemployment, uh, that it is policy uncertainty, and uh, and I'm, I think for the time being we probably have to accept this is the new normal. But hopefully after December we might we might get more clarity on the way ahead 
and this would be good for the economy as well. But looking ahead, I mean, we have two months before the elective conference of the African National Congress. How would you then describe our economy presently? And do you think our economy can stomach perhaps another reshuffle because there's talks about that? Well, I, do, I hope not, because as I've said, I think we've already paid a high price for the cumulative impact of all the changes at the top over the past couple of years. But more importantly, I think before December, of course, we've got the medium-term, we've got the medium-term budget policy statement next week. That's actually a very important watershed, not only for the Minister of Finance, but also for what message it sends out about our economy, because we're clearly not meeting either our growth or, or our fiscal targets. And so there are some enormous fiscal and indeed credibility challenges that, that, that are facing the Minister of Finance next week. So I think even before we get to the political decision-making of December, there's some economic decision-making and some tough decisions that have to be faced in the so-called mini-budget next week. Now, we've seen also the uh, um, the IMF and the World Bank who have further scaled down their forecast of growth for South Africa. Why do you think South Africa is only one of the few leading economies to have the growth outlook downgraded amidst this booming world economy that we've seen? Well, this is one of the disappointments, of course, that we seem to have sort of de- we seem to have decoupled ourselves from the world economy. Normally, we are in in line, broadly speaking. If the world economy grows, we grow. So, so quite clearly, there are, there are critical challenges internally. We can't now blame the world economy because it's actually booming. The fact is, why have we decoupled ourselves? Why are we less competitive? And, and why are we not addressing some of the challenges that we need to face in order to turn it around? And that, of course, is part of what we must expect in the mini-budget next week is what signals are we going to get to enable us to turn the economy around and to do better and to enlarge our share of, of world trade and world investment in order to boost our, our own economy. So that's, you know, that's the big challenge we face. It's no use. We, I don't think we, we must look for, for any responsibility outside the country. We must look for the answers inside the country. Mm-hmm. Now, you talked about this low growth trap. Now, South Africa is also the only member of the BRICS that were, were presently with a, a weaker growth outlook in the latest IMF forecast. What does this mean for us as a country and, of course, looking at uh, the policy uncertainty index, which you've released a, a couple of weeks ago, what does it mean for that uh, medium-term budget policy statement uh, that's coming up on October the 25th next week? And, and what can it tell or assist the minister with in forecasting for the next couple of years? Well, I think what's important is to show that we've got our public finances under control, that the issues of state capture and corruption, that these are being addressed uh, uh, in a strong way to the extent that the National Treasury has a, has a role there. So it's not only fiscal consolidation, but also fiscal poverty that needs to come through. Then it's the issue of how we finance the state-owned, particular, all the state-owned structures which are draining off quite a lot of funds, such as SAA and, of course, ESCOM. That's an important, a very important component of, of what has to be decided next week. And then, ultimately, if we're not to get into a vicious circle of simply having to tax and spend, 
in order to indeed finance government. We've got to say, well, how do we craft uh, our public finances, both next week and in the main budget, which will come in February, so that we hold out a message that there are growth prospects. In the end of the day, we have to grow out of these problems, otherwise we'll just end up in a vicious circle. Mm-hmm. So the important point, and which the first major step will be next week, the second step will obviously be in the main budget from a purely economic and a fiscal point of view, is to say these are the right things and the right choices we're going to make to keep our own, to keep control over the government's checkbook and to ensure that, of course, funds are not wasted uh, or not diverted uh, to where they should not go. Uh, and above all, that it also embodies a message that we are embarking on policies of structural reform that will enable us to grow more rapidly and therefore create more jobs, be able to finance the government better, and be able to keep our taxes at fairly reasonable levels. That's the big challenge. It's not a small challenge, and some very tough decisions have to be taken both by government and the private sector over the next few months. Final thought, Professor, in 30 seconds. Well, I think the important point, just coming back to to what we said uh, about the mini-budget next week, there are a number of challenges. And now I think our finance minister, who's only been there for six months, has a wonderful opportunity to prove the sceptics wrong. Thank you, Professor Raymond Parsons, uh, coming to us uh, from the Northwest University School of Business and Governance, the SBG, talking about the latest cabinet reshuffle and whether or not it does inspire confidence.